0: Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I am Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, we'll have two guests on the show, but at the same time, Bruce Feldman from Fox and Stuart Mandel from The Athletic. Bruce, of course, writes for The Athletic, too. Earlier this week, they released their personal Top 25 college football coaches' lists. Always good off-season fodder. I'll scrutinize their list and tell them what they got right and what they got wrong. And I'll try to share a work-in-progress list of my own. We'll also run through some news with Bruce and Stu and talk about the latest missteps by the NCAA. And at the end, I'll answer some listener email in my three and out. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. Really, anywhere you can get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and a good rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And if you'd like to email the show, send those questions and comments to ap top 25 mailbag at gmail.com that's ap top 25 the numbers 25 mailbag at gmail.com and away we go joining me this week on the podcast we have two guests we have two guests at the same time because I am, uh, I am, I have managed to master that technology with Skype and I'm able to make a, a phone call with multiple participants. And those multiple participants are, uh, Bruce Feldman from Fox and the Athletic and Stuart Mandel from the Athletic. You know them both. They have their own podcast, the Audible. Uh, they do great work, uh, for the Athletic and they earlier this week did their annual top 25 coaches now stu has been doing this for a long time and taking the arrows for that he dragged bruce into this um into this affair over the last couple of years um it sparks me thinking about why i maybe what 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 my list would be so i've sort of scratched one together well first of all thanks for joining me guys
1: thank you for doing this and thank you for pulling off the technology uh uh, triple there. I don't think our friend Dennis Dodd could have done that, but you know, you you making us older folks feel pretty <laughs> I'm glad we're doing this
2: podcast because usually you just text us with all your complaints. So now you can air them publicly.
0: Yes, and I've I've already texted a couple, I think. But but it is better to just do this live and make it a podcast of your own. Even though I'm just promoting the competition here and 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 giving the athletic all this free uh free um publicity. But that's fine. You guys do great work, that's and you're only a dollar
2: a month right now.
0: Dollar <laughs> a month. to there you drive the athletic. There you go. Put that, put that puck right on your stick. Uh, I am, I am feeling confident right now about because of the technology success. Also, I got my first dose of the vaccine yesterday, uh, because I'm old enough to get it. My, and my wife is savvy enough on websites to find appointments other than my arm being very sore. Um, I'm feeling good about that. So yes, it's a, it's a good day all in all for me. Um, Let's start with a little newsy, a couple of little newsy items though. Uh, earlier today, um, Lincoln Riley, I, I think it was you, Stu, who sort of had, who, who said, who might have said like, Lincoln Riley's got to join us in 2021 because it's a very 2016 comment. Lincoln Riley sort of came out and, and basically had made a statement about how he didn't think it was a good idea for, in-conference transfers, intra-conference transfers to be immediately eligible. And Oklahoma right now is in the process of, I guess, sort of blocking or standing in the way of um, Chandler Morris being immediately eligible at TCU. I'll start with you, Stu, again, because I think it was your your clever tweet. I I mean, what do we even do? I didn't even think we were doing this anymore.
2: I'll be honest. I didn't know that was still allowed. I mean... The whole point of the transfer portal—you remember this used to be standard practice, right? Somebody would announce they transferring, and then it would come out that the, that they were being blocked from transferring to like thirty-seven different schools, and then it would become a whole public thing. And and the, one of the big, um, you know, motivations behind the transfer portal was to take that out of the equation. And then as long as you follow the proper uh, protocols and there's not tampering, that once you you know put your name in there, you can go anywhere you want. Um, So I don't know why he's trying to fight this fight because it's over, right? Like, there's not, there's no debate. There's no like, should we or should we or should we not do this? Like, everybody got together and decided we weren't going to do this anymore. So it makes you all the more um, out of touch when you're trying to do this three years after they changed the rules to avoid this.
0: And, And it should be noted before I go to you, Bruce, on this is conferences still have the ability to to put some restrictions on even when all with all the NCAA reform over the last couple of years and more to come uh, conferences still do have the ability to put, to put some restrictions on transfers within conference that never changed though. A lot of school, a, a lot of conferences have sort of pulled back. The ACC recently said that they were not going to stop this, that they were going to allow transfers within the conference as much as they want, but the big 12s rule is still there. So I will give Lincoln this like all, I guess all he's doing is saying, listen, we're allowed to do this. The rule's still in place. So I, I, I cut him a little slack on that. I don't know if you do, Bruce. Um,
1: you know, I think it's just a bad optics thing. To, to be honest, for for me, if you are a coach, and I'm not saying this is exactly what Lincoln Riley is thinking, but I, I think, and as Stu, Stu, Stu use this word um, – if you suspect somebody is tampering and that's why you are blocking or there is concern of that, then I feel like that's about the only, but either you, you come forward and say that kind of thing or otherwise it looks extremely petty. Um, and it, and again, in some of these things and in this day and age where it's, you're trying to be very understanding of the student athlete and supportive of them because look, these restrictions would not be placed on an assistant coach, let's say, uh, you know, Lincoln Riley wanted to hire somebody from another school within the conference. I mean, I get it. It's different. There's employees, not students, but they don't have to sit out a year. I mean, you can, you can do, you know, he could try to hire somebody away from somebody else's staff. So I think that's the part where unless there's tampering or you suspect that that kind of thing is going on, I don't know and I mean and also I think people are looking at this going you know you just got you have everyone's talked up Spencer Rattler you just got Caleb Williams who's coming in there a lot of people think is the the best high school quarterback in the country um is this going to make a big difference but who knows
0: Yeah I mean Lincoln Riley did also benefit from Baker Mayfield being given an extra year, right? When a rule was changed about walk-ons transferring, I believe, uh, I think that was just a Big 12 rule and not a, an NCAA rule. So, right. I, I think ultimately it comes away with sort of like you're fighting a, a lost battle here. Soon the NCAA, probably maybe as soon as this month will finally tr- either change its rules or install some kind of waiver, like will, which will be like a patch before they can actually do something legislatively. And every athlete will be able to transfer. Now, again, conferences can still keep their in conference restrictions if they want. But I, I just think that this is a, this is a lost cause that Lincoln Riley is fighting here. The other little bit of news that came up today was just on the field, and you know, you it's, we've almost sort of forgotten, at least I sort of have, because I've been sort of tied up with basketball the last couple of weeks. You know, spring practice is here and it's going on, and it's going on relatively normally. We've heard some shutdowns and pauses. Ohio State had a little one. Duke had one. I'm kind of forgetting somebody here. There's been a couple of more. Pitt had one. Yeah, Pitt. I think announced one today. So things aren't. Perfect (laughs) as far as COVID still getting in the way a little bit, but things are a little bit back to normal. And unfortunately, what that means is we had George Pickens, the really terrific wide receiver from Georgia, go down with an injury. Because again, when you start having spring practice, you're going to have some injuries. And unfortunately... That the most notable one so far I can think of is George Pickens, and that happened uh, earlier today. Bruce, what does losing Pickens mean to? Because if it's, if it's a torn ACL, and that's what he, they, that's what the school said, I, that, that doesn't sound like something that you're going to be back. You know, maybe at the end of the season if everything goes great.
1: Yeah, and I think in, in his case, and we'll see, because a lot of these these cases are. You know, they vary into how quickly you can get back. I think people would look at George Pickens and go, you know what? He was a three and out kind of player. And so if they get him back at some point in the season rather than preserve a redshirt year, um, you know, it's like how much can he help you right away? I mean, he certainly, you know, I would say he's one of the six or seven best receivers in college football after last year and when they really got settled in with jt daniels so um you know that's certainly a big blow but like you said that's you know i feel like every spring in a normal spring which we obviously didn't have last year you have a lot of these cringe cringe worthy things where where somebody either tears an acl or has some significant injury that's going to sideline them for the year
2: If you guys remember two two years ago Mario rogers at clemson tours acl Maybe a couple weeks earlier than this, but it was during spring practice mm-hmm. and I believe he was back by mid October. So it's not like now every case varies and how well do they rehab and everything, but it's, it's, it seems to me that he's got a shot to be back, but he's not going to be back by. Week one, probably not for yeah. that big Clemson game.
0: And there's always, listen, at, at Georgia, the way they're recruiting recently, and this is not to downplay that, I, you know, you feel bad for the player. George Pickens was a great player, uh, but there's always another five-star at a place like Georgia. They've recruited really, really well over the last couple of years. I, I think the only question then becomes is Pickens was had had developed to the point of being a real number one receiver. Yes, we know there are other talented players. On George's roster, but have any of them, none of them have shown the, the ability yet to be a number one receiver. And it'll be interesting to see if the opportunity given to them provides someone else to step up and shine. It's not a, it's not an, uh, um, an apples to apples comparison, but I think about, you know, last year in the Big Ten championship game, Olave was, Chris Olave was out for Ohio State. And, you know, again, you sort of shrug and you're like, well, they've got, you know, they just brought in one of this this unbelievable receiving class, right? They've got three or four, you know, four or five star players behind them. But Olave was a fully developed player. And in that spot, they missed him because even though they had talented players, they didn't have somebody as good as Olave as far as his development was concerned. Again, not apples to apples because they're going to have a lot of time to develop these guys. But it'll be interesting to see where Georgia how Georgia does as far as developing its receivers, especially, and I'll go to you, Bruce, and just one last thought, like this is a really pivotal year, obviously for Georgia's offense.
1: It is. I mean, you know, I think back to 2019, remember they, they really were young at receiver and he emerged really late in the year, but Jake Fromm had a really shaky uh, 2019 season because they didn't really have that go-to guy. And I think, you know, you're a analogy is interesting just in that he was a number one go-to guy and he's the guy that the other, you know, the other defense has to really account for. Just think that opens up a lot for a lot of other guys. And it's not like, as you said, they have talented players there, but it's still going to be somebody depending on if, when they get them back. Um, that that's hard to replace it. It just is, especially when you have such a huge game out of the gate.
0: Okay, let's go to the list. Enough of that. (laughs) So I guess I have to do this because there are probably some of my listeners, or I'm sure there's a lot of overlap, that don't have the athletic, and and you should. So I'm going to run through each one of your lists. Just I'm just going to list them down. We're not going to stop on each coach. We're not doing that because that'll take way too long. But let's just do this. Here is stew's list of course Sabin one Dabo two brian kelly three about time uh lincoln riley four ryan day five kirby smart six jimbo fisher seven kojo eight dan mullen nine matt campbell ten luke fickle at 11 pat fitzgerald 12 jeff monken 13 paul christ is 14 Kyle Whittingham is 15. Bill Clark of UAB is 16. James Franklin all the way down to 17. PJ Fleck at 18. Mario Cristobal 19. Hugh Freeze at 20. Kirk Ferentz at 21. Lance Leipold at 22. David Shore 23. Lane Kiffin 24. Tom Allen 25. I'm going to let you all digest that for a second. We're going to go over to Bru- Bruce's list. All right. Bruce same top 2, same top 3. Sabin, Sweeney, Brian Kelly. Well, it's same top 4 cuz you had Lincoln at 4 too, right? Uh Stu, real quickly, yes. Yep, uh,
2: it's where Ryan Day is where we start to diverge. I
0: okay, think. so 5 James Franklin, 6 Jimbo, 7 Coach O, Ryan Day at 8. Uh, Matt Campbell at 9, Kirby Smart 10. Pat Fitzgerald, 11, Kyle Whittingham, 12, Kirk Ferentz 13, David Shaw, 14, Gary Patterson, 15, Mullen, 16, Lance Leipold, 17, Jeff Monkin 18, Mario Cristobal, 19, Luke Fickle, 20, Paul Chris, 21, Jim Harbaugh, 22, Mike Leach, 23, Hugh Freeze, 24, Tom Allen, 25. Okay. So again, we uh, th- at the top, that's super easy. Uh, um, first, I want to start with, because I think you guys are, were, were way behind on the Brian Kelly thing. I don't think either of you had him at three last year. I think, you know, when I've been sort of putting together my list, I felt like Kelly has been highly undervalued for several years now. What finally made you come around on Kelly? I shouldn't say come around because obviously he was highly rated before, but what finally made you say, okay, Kelly at number three and let's just start with Stu.
2: You're gonna have to ask Bruce because I believe I did have him number three last
0: year. Okay. So okay, so Bruce then.
1: Uh for me it was just the consistency of of what he had done there. I mean, I, I had him eight the year before. Okay. So it wasn't like I had him completely out, but obviously I jumped him up a lot. Now, some of what why I was a little slower on him. Um last year, he was a couple of seasons removed from a four and eight season, right? And in that gap, even before the four and eight, they were unranked two years before that. So it was like there was the element of they got they get blown, he has gotten blown out of a bunch of games. Right. And I know and we'll I'm sure we'll talk about Jim Harbaugh later. But after last year, they were a top 10 team and Michigan beat them by 30 points. So, you know, he, last year they were 11 and two. I felt like last year was probably as good a team. Um, you know, they beat Clemson and I know people go, yeah, they beat Clemson without Trevor Lawrence and a bunch of defensive starters, but they did, they did win that game. Um, you know, so for me, it was a combination of things like I, I am not, it's a tepid three with Brian Kelly. I could make a case for him. Um, I can make a case for Lincoln Riley, but a lot of the guys that I have, that I would consider there just like, yeah, they have a little more, I have a little more hesitancy there. You know, whereas, like I said, yes, you're going to get some criticism on Brian Kelly because they've had some, uh, some, uh, some ugly blowout losses on the big stages. Um, you know, especially in the playoff and the postseason, but I think he's a really good coach. I think it's hard to have a long sustained run at Notre Dame because it's just not so much the fishbowl, but you know, I said this on our podcast or, you know, earlier today. Just from talking to coaches who've been at Notre Dame, yeah, they can't take everybody academically, but the harder part is not just getting kids into school. I think the harder part for them you hear about is keeping them into school Mm -hmm. in terms of some of the academic rigors. And I think he's done a really good job with that at a place where it's not like, you know, you bring a kid. Not every kid is going to want to go to college in South Bend, Indiana, in a small town that far away in not great weather. And so it's just not a great uh, fit for a lot of the kids who are seen as four and five-star guys. So the recruiting pool is smaller, and I think he's done a really, really good job there.
2: Let me uh, correct myself real quick. I had him sixth last year, not third. Um So you are right that we were behind on that. But I would ask you, Ralph, why is it so cut and dry to you? I mean, I I ended up putting Brian Kelly third, but in various versions of my column, at one point, Lincoln Riley was there. At one point, Ryan Day was there. Um, I do believe what Kelly has done there is remarkable. But I also think Lincoln Riley winning the Big 12 all four seasons he's been there is pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, I've always been a little more and we'll get into this now too, a like sort of a body of work. Um when we do these lists and listen, the other thing I should say, these lists are impossible, right? Everybody's <laughs> going to everybody's going to take them from a little different angle. And so much has to do with fit at school and and so much is trying to figure out like, well, you should be good at that school and who is, and I've also also, you know, looked through the lens of like how do you Um, compare to the history of the school. Obviously, you know Notre Dame has done bigger things at at different times than Brian Kelly has done. But nonetheless, the recent history of Notre Dame, Brian Kelly figured out what a lot of coaches could not. So his history of just being good, going back to Grand Valley, you know, the guys had what a almost a thirty year coaching career with one losing record. So that's always uh, meant a lot to me, and a lot of what. Uh, Bruce just touched on as far as like, it is really hard to be good at Notre Dame, sustain good at Notre Dame now. And I have, you know, a, a solid 15 to 20 years of evidence before Kelly. Well, about 15 years of evidence leading up to Kelly of just how hard it was that the landscape of college football had changed to the point where, you know, Kelly doing this is pretty impressive. And I understand he's not, you know, we get into this all the time. It, like Notre Dame is not at that elite level but really there're only 3 or 4 teams there. So if you, if we're going to you know if we're going to if we're going to hold them to that standard, nobody meets that standard really. So yeah, that to me it's always been like Kelly, I've been sort of on Kelly for the last few years ever since he had that bump in the road and quickly turned things around. And and also in in a pool where there's not a whole bunch of obvious guys with a bunch of championships and um you know, there's nobody else really close to Sabin and Dabo. So within that pool, if I'm comparing him to James Franklin and Ed O and Dan Mullen and, uh, you know, the descending Gary Patterson and the ascending Kirby Smart and Lincoln Riley, I've always sort of landed on Kelly.
2: Look, Notre Dame under Davey, Willingham, Weiss was a lot like Nebraska now, you know, is I think maybe people of a certain generation slightly older than ours feels like, well, Notre Dame should be winning national titles, and he hasn't won the national titles, so he's overrated. And it's like, well, the sport changed a lot over the last 30 years, and clearly the balance of the power is in the South. And, and you know, that revolutionary TV deal, I believe it was in 1990, where Notre Dame got that NBC deal, mm-hmm. and kind of nobody had, had done anything like that before. Well, now everybody's on Alabama is on national TV every week, right? Like that's not a – the things that used to be Notre Dame's advantage in the days of new – more recent than that, right? Like Frank Leahy or even up to uh, – Dan Devine and Lou
0: Holtz. Yeah.
2: They're not there anymore. They don't have those advantages of anything. I think, you know, we know the reasons why they choose to be independent. It's very important to
1: them as a university, but it definitely makes it harder for their football program. Ralph, can I quickly play devil's advocate? Sure. Or maybe it's John Walter's advocate in this case. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I agree with everything Stu, almost everything Stu just said. The one thing is, if you are a diehard Notre Dame fan and of that you're of that age, especially, I think if you take Clemson, LSU, Alabama certainly aside, I think the one part you look at and go, mm, you know, Ohio State is stockpiling talent. They're in the Midwest. They're you know I get it. They they're in a they have a, a little different prism. But I think in terms of geographically, they're, they're collecting elite recruits too. So I think maybe that's part of it where it's like, wow, we can't, you know, it feels like they're definitely a consistent playoff caliber team. It's just, can they compete when they get up against a really super elite team? And that's probably where the gap is.
0: So the other thing is I I mentioned I'm, I tend to be more of a body of work person and just kind of, I think I like this, lay this out for between you guys. I think Bruce, tends to be a little bit bruce and i tend to think a little more similar similarly when we do these lists um i think uh, Stu, man like you're just like a prisoner of the moment man like you <laughs> you just swing wildly from year to year and like this guy's out no like like you you're just chasing around the the, the hot coach here so i mean I-, I say it's like based mostly
2: on the last three years though i will admit that like Pat Fitzgerald falling out entirely and then moving back in at 12 was a little <laughs> short-sighted. The way I look at it this way, guys, like, we're all evaluated at our jobs. Like, if, if I, you know, if I'm, like, we'll get to this. Bruce has Jim Harbaugh on his list still. Like, if I peaked in 2016 and then my job performance got worse every year since then, like, I don't think that they'd be handing wh- me, a, me <laughs> awards still, right? It's what it... You have to keep doing a good job.
0: Uh, I
1: Technically, could... Technically, I think you might have peaked in
0: 2016.
1: <laughs> Stu has... Stu has the patience of a, of a house cat. I mean, <laughs> like the fact that you just said, Ralph, you mentioned Grand Valley State. I don't think Stu even's thinking back to Cincinnati when it comes to Brian <laughs> Kelly, right? So.
2: Well, um, I, no, that's not true. I, I mentioned that in the mail. But like those are all. I don't know why we're using him as an example. I have him number three. You know, a better example is Harbaugh because Bruce always brings up like, what, he you know, did Stanford, a, what he did at Stanford. Better, what he did at Stanford example,
1: was. A better example, though, Stu, is actually is James Franklin. You have James Franklin down at 17. And the year before the pandemic, they were 11 and two. Like the year, like to me, that's the part where I'm like, I don't understand it. The three of the four years before the pandemic, they were in the top 10 and he was 42 and 12. And you have him next to PJ Fleck.
0: Yeah. You, you docked, you docked Franklin's 10 spots off of a, a weird pandemic year where they, they lost two games that, you know, I'll cite Bill Conley here. They were 90% chance to, to beat Indiana and Nebraska, the Indiana game. They had that game won seven times. I mean, you can say, well, it's James Franklin's fault, but yeah, kind of, or, or they could have just called that Michael Penix out of bounds. And it's a completely different season.
1: (laughs) You also lose journey Brown. Who's probably the best running back in the conference, you know, through no fault of the pandemic to a, a serious health issue. It's just, um, you know, I'm uh, relatively on the eve of the season. So,
2: Well, I think all of those things are good, valid points, and they're all the reasons why he's still in my top 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think, well, I think that, um, first of all, I th- you know, it's one of those things when you look back and like, oh, I had him a little too high last year. I, I don't, I try not to be like, um, I'm, you know, because he went four and five, because he went four and five, I got to drop him 10 spot. There's other things going on, guys. Like that program has, has issues. I mean, it's regressed in the last couple of years, not just student. on the they field, were, but student. in recruiting, they, they had the worst the year before, but they, they had two the year before. <laughs> okay. But there's more going on there. And well, you know, that. Like, they, they had the worst, he had the worst recruiting year of his tenure this past year. They couldn't get anybody in state to stay in there um, to, to come to Penn state. They lost a five-star offensive lineman to Wisconsin. They, you know, he brought in a new offensive coordinator and he fired him after one year. Like there's, there's things going on there that give me pause and say like, well, maybe he's not one of the ten best coaches in the country right now.
0: Okay, so here, here we're gonna, now I'm gonna I'm gonna pound both of you on this because you both had, and especially Mister Body of Work Feldman here had just a had just a ridiculous omission, a, just an unbelievable omission on both of your lists. So let's get into that. How in the world could either of you not have Mac Brown on your list? Like I can understand like maybe easing Mac in a little bit and, and not being so quickly to push him back in the list last year. But after the, I mean, he stepped into a program that was a wreck. He quickly got them to a winning record. And last year got them to a, a, a college football playoff game uh, and where they were very competitive without half their, you know, skill position players against a really good Texas A&M team. Like guys, you kind of missed the boat on Mac here.
2: Well, he's my first one out. You know, I, I feel like, <laughs> first. One. you know, I, I, first of all, this is where I do differ in terms of body of work. Like what Mac Brown did in 2009 has no bearing on what kind of coach he is today. But how can that uh, possibly be? <laughs> it's a different sport. It's a di- he's in a different part of the country. It's a completely different sport than 2009. Um, he, uh, he's done a great job. Like he's, he's, energize that program. They're recruiting. They will, like you said, they went to a new year's day bowl, but at the end of the day, they went seven and six in 2019 and eight and four this year, you know? So should, is it like a, I, to me, it's not a, I definitely considered it, but it's not like a, you're making it seem like it's a glaring omission. Like,
0: Because it's um, It's a glaring omission.
2: <laughs> it's a gl- I, I don't think it, I don't think it is. I think if he comes back next year and does it again, then yeah, absolutely. But um I, I don't think like, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, he has a thirteen. You know, he's a fifteen and ten record uh, in his return to North Carolina so far. It's better than what they were doing, but is it like okay? What uh, Matt Campbell has done at Iowa State? No.
0: So, so, so clearly, so we know Stu is a prisoner of the moment. But Bruce, I expected more from you because if again, Bruce, if you're going to have Jim Harbaugh hanging around and still credit him for a Super Bowl, which by the way, t- <laughs> tend to agree with, I tend to agree. With. I'm I'm with you on that one. How could you? Did you just forget? What Mac? on
2: earth does Colin Kaepernick have to do with uh, the fact that he hasn't developed a I am issue.
0: talking to Bruce right now. I, I have already <laughs> done my, had my piece with you. Now I got to I got to take call Bruce to task you because again you're my guy. You're my body of work guy. Did you forget about Mac? Did you not? I mean, I, you. I, I didn't.
1: <laughs> Look, Ralph. I'll be honest. I had this conversation with our buddy Max Olson yesterday. Less less um, condescending in his words, <laughs> <laughs> but I got to admit. It's one that there's a, there's probably three on this where I would look at it and go, eh, you know, I, I definitely could see the failed logic on it on my end. Um, you know, it, it, to me, especially number 25 for me is Tom Allen. And I said this to Stu earlier today. Um, which is one of the things that I think, you know, as we see, we come at these differently, but you know, I spent five years as a sideline reporter. And so you're around teams, you get to see them in a little bit different way, maybe than I did as a, you know, in the press box, or, you know, in my other role. And one of those teams that like, I was like, man, you kind of, I hate to say it, but you kind of fall for and you have a different appreciation for. Um, and there's a handful that fell into this category, where I was like, my eyes were more open to them. Uh, seeing Utah up close, got a different appreciation for them. Seeing Iowa up close, different appreciation for them. Uh, seeing Indiana, even when they lost, you know, like at at Ohio state a couple of years ago, same deal. And, you know, looking at it big picture wise, I'm like, you know what like, and I heard this from a a coach who responded, uh, this morning about or yesterday morning was, isn't this kind of a one-year wonder thing? Cause, uh, cause 2020, yeah, they had a terrific year in a pandemic, but before that, were they that much better uh, at Indiana than, than they were under, um, Kevin Wilson. And, you know, like that made me think, cause I was like, I think they're better. And I think they're going in a good direction. I don't think they're fluky, but then put, you know, flip that to the Mac Brown piece of this where I'm taking it. And I get where Stu just said, yeah, there were 15 and 10. I think he and I both uh forget how bad they were at the end of the Larry Fedora era. I mean, they were bad. And, um, you know, to Mac Brown's credit, like I don't, I don't get too caught up. I think Stu was babbling when he's talking about, well, James Franklin didn't have a great <laughs> recruiting class two years ago. The thing I will give Mac Brown a lot of credit for, which is he did pull, uh, Sam Howell away from Florida state. And that was a program building move. Mm -hmm. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, you know, I, I will, this is one that I definitely probably would, would like to have back to be honest. Speaking of Florida
2: state, Mac Brown lost to Florida state last year. Terrible, terrible Florida state team lost to them. Like let's not make it out like the 2020 North Carolina Tar Heels were, you know, one of the greatest teams that ever lit. Like they, they are definitely better than Larry Fedora days, but to me, it's it's they still kind of a work in progress. So, you know, like I said, Dave, momentum continues next year. I'm probably putting them in the list.
0: Stu, if I had a squeaky tennis ball, if I had a squeaky <laughs> tennis ball, you would chase it down the hallway. I, I like you, and, and here's and here's the exact reason why. Because I flip over to your list and uh, listen. I think we all re- and you have Tom Allen too, and I I took issue with. Listen, it's hard to take issue with Tom Allen. He does seem like a really good guy and a really good coach, but I wouldn't have him on my list. But, uh, Stu, Lane Kiffin at number 24? Lane, I mean, again. Lane Kiffin is one of the the
2: top offensive. It would be interesting if we ask now, like, you know, you think back to like the early 2010s. Like you said, who's the best offensive mind in college football? Everybody would agree. Chip Kelly. Chip Mm -hmm. Kelly was that guy then. It's a little bit more of an open debate now, but he's on the high on the list, right? It, him and Sark. Did uh, you
1: have Cliff on your list before he left Lubbock? Still? Uh
2: At one point, I would have. I don't know. You know, Art Briles certainly before the scandal would have been on that list. Leach uh, is on your list. Yep. So, I mean, I think nope. between what no, he did, Leach at is Alabama not on your list. And then FAU a miss. And now first year okay. at all Miss. Like, I know he's got. You know, he's controversial. He's whatever, but like he's. No question at this point, one of the best offensive minds in the sport. Now, there's defense, too, in college football. And Ole Miss didn't play any last year. Uh, But, you know, he won two out of three conference conference championship, two out of three at FAU. FAU has not won anything before. That's And then he comes into Ole Miss, and they're immediately top 10 national offense that, um, you know, gives uh, Nick Saban his toughest fit of the whole year. So, uh, I think think he's one of the top 25 coaches, but I'm not going to put him much higher than that. But I think he's on the top 25 coaches. Uh,
0: the, the interesting thing with Lane is, you know, when Lane was at USC, every, like he became a, a, like the, a national laughing stock. And also in some ways he, for, for his persona made him like the most hated man in college football, uh, yep. in many ways. Right. And I think his, um, when he was banished, right? It, he be, when he became Sabin's punching bag for a little while, there was something about that, that people sort of warmed up to him. And then he went to Boca and did his thing down there. And I think people have sort of now re-embraced uh, Lane. The interesting thing was I always remember being like criticized for defending Lane at USC. I felt like I was the last man standing on the, Hey, I think Lane can really coach. I mean, I know he's got some other, <laughs> some other like things that get in the way of his coaching, like, you know, that sometimes his personality. He rubs people the wrong wrong way. He like his voice is like always set to condescending module, which which I know rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But as a coach, I always felt like I was defending Lane. So it's odd for me to now be on the on the on the the other end of saying like, yeah, let, let's 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 hold off on like anointing Lane here because I do think like it's it switched. I think I'm now in. The minority sort of tapping the brakes on lane where a lot of people want to want to go like a 100 miles an hour in the lane in the lane lane. Right. Just well, like,
2: Do you think since you're the body of work guy that you're maybe still holding the USC stuff against him? Yes. And, you know, kind of yeah. like how we held. A lot of people held, you know, couldn't refuse to take Ed Ogeron seriously until he'd actually won a national title because what happened at Ole Miss, you know, 15 years earlier.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I also I do wonder about like the program building and culture and if Lane really has that down yet or if he's still just a really brilliant offensive mind. And at a certain point, you like, that's great in at FAU, you know, spot talent, get it to come here, get it to come to you and then do the best you can with that talent. But in, you know, in, in, in the SEC, like, yeah, talent accumulation and, and ball plays is really important, but you got to build an entire program. And I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm going to, I'm going to w- withhold judgment on whether he can build a whole program in the SEC. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, so other body of work, guy that neither of you have, and I'm wondering if, um, if it was maybe a tough off season that 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 produced this, and that's Mike Mike Gundy's done a really good job for a long time. I was kind of surprised that neither of you had him on his li- on this list on your list.
1: Stu, you want me to take this
0: first? you yeah, you go, you go sure. first. You go first. I've already again. I keep pounding on Stu, and I I, I want to make sure at least some of my ire is tor- turned towards you.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I obviously consider him, I think I had Mike Gundy a year or two years ago when I first did this. Um, to me, he's done a really good job, but it's hard to keep that list to, t- to 25. And I look back at, you know, the big 12 to me, it's like, I don't think, you know, he's, he had one, one terrific and then the rest have been pretty good. Right. And so when I've looked at this and I've done, you know, I think I've done a couple of Bedlam games and I feel like whenever they get Oklahoma's focus, they're not, they're, they're getting pushed out of the bill. And I just don't see it as, Hey, this is one of the top 25 coaches in the country. Um, Like, is he among the guys you'd consider? Yes. But just simply where I just don't, you know, except for the one year where they had a top five team, I mean, they have really good facilities they're in a league that you know after after Texas and OU I think they are better positioned than certainly Iowa State than the Kansas schools than Texas Tech um you know I just I don't know I just don't see it as the same same body of work I mean you know not to get off you know to deviate too much from this but like Gary Patterson is one that I kind of went back and forth on cuz you take his body of work and it's really amazing. And again, this, this is kind of the flip side of Stu's thing. I think Gary Patterson's one of the best defensive coaches in all of football, but he's a head coach in the last three years have not been great there. And they've been under, you know, underwhelming. But when I look at what he's done to me, his body of work is just a, a notch or two above Gundy's. Um, and I kind of go back and go back and forth on him. Yeah. So
2: Gundy's body of work is great. Again, like I emphasize the last three years and the last three years, seven and six, eight and five, eight and three. But Ralph, you referenced the events of last summer. Um, you remember that school ended up doing an investigation and the big takeaway was, uh, not about, you know, the t shirt started it, but that wasn't what the big takeaway was. It was like he didn't know the names of some of his players. He had no relationship with his players. That was kind of a red flag moment where you're like, huh. Like, is this really one of the best coaches in the country or has he been like kind of like um, masking some things all this time? So I'm not saying like that was the deciding factor, but it's hard not to look at him now and think about that.
0: So here's my I'll give you my defense of Mike Gundy, because a lot of it, and it it works not just for Mike Gundy, but for a lot of these guys who end up on my list. And at some point, I, I guess I'll run through mine and is it is it tends to be. How are you compared to your history, right? I mentioned this before. You know, I'm looking at the, you know, the, the Mike, the, the Oklahoma State list of coaches, right? List of o- Oklahoma State coaches, historical list. And Mike Gundy's winning percentage is 672. I mean, there's nobody in recent, even even less who was only there for a few years and did well. Was uh, was five seventy one? There's nobody within like the the Oklahoma State is not a winning program. It's not a program that achieves at the at a very high level historically. Until Gundy got there, now you can say he also benefited from T Boone, um, you know, the late T Boone Pickens really like you know flooding the program with money, um. So Gundy, Gundy got to be the beneficiary of, beneficiary of that. But I look at people like Gundy and I see, cause I know you guys both are both very high on Pat Fitzgerald and I see maybe not again apples to apples comparison, but a similar or Dan Mullen and what he did at at, at Mississippi State where this is not what this, I know they haven't gotten over the Oklahoma hump and you say they're they're better positioned than most of all their other Big 12 competition and maybe now that's the case when the Big 12 had Texas A&M and Nebraska that wasn't the case but i just right. feel like he has h- achieved historically at a level that that program has not seen and that's why you know again i'm looking down and i probably i have him at 14 now but though I will admit that you may have talked me out of uh, talked me down on that and I might knock him down a little bit after what happened last year. But I, I still think that he 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 checks the box when it comes to what the program has been and what it was under you. And oh boy, it's been a lot better under him than it was ever before.
1: Ralph, let me ask you this. So having said that, if you had him at fourteen or so, how high up do you have Gary Patterson then?
0: I had Patterson right behind him. Uh, Only because Gary's been losing his fastball a little bit over the last couple of years, right? He has, he has, he has had a hard time sort of recapturing the glory of of the last few years. Where even Gundy, in in a little bit of a year, what which you know you can say last year was disappointment to a certain degree. A lot of people thought that Oklahoma State had the window to be the best team in the Big Twelve last year, and they weren't. But I feel like. You know, Gundy's still had them at a little higher level where Patterson, it's been really funky offensively for the last few years and they've tailed off. So, you know, again, 14, 15. And you may have just convinced me to knock Gundy below him.
1: Yeah, I just I mean, the reason why I go there is just and again, I'm agreeing with a lot of it. It's Just, you know, the last three years, Oklahoma State's been a little better than TCU. I don't think they've been that much better than them. But the year before that, they they were a top 10 team. And I just kind of go back since he's been in the big twelve, they've been in the top ten three times, and Oklahoma State has only been in there I think once since Gundy's been there, and he's been there a long time, and they have Patterson has a lot of top ten seasons. I think he has like eight Ralph, all I want to know,
2: so it sounds like you've got several guys on your list that that I don't and vice versa. Are you team Bill Clark or are you not?
0: I am not. Oh, what is wrong with you? I am not Team Bill Clark. Um, I am, I, yeah, I have a hard time sort of embracing. The conference
2: USA, the conference you're USA, I, the com- you're anti conference USA.
0: I, yeah, I feel bad here because you know I hate to trash the whole conference, but the conference has been so bad, so bad. It's really regressed over the last couple of years to the point where it's. I think it's fallen behind the Sun Belt, and
1: way behind the Sun Belt. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. Like I, this is actually a separate topic, but I was like. At some point, I, uh, the Sunbelt was always seemed to be the worst of the of FBS. Mm-hmm. I don't know when it flipped, but it definitely flipped where there's between Louisiana and certainly coastal last year. um, You know, there uh, there's there's some really, res- you know, solid programs now have come up, whereas I feel like in Conference USA, it just feels really, really watered down right now. Well, Conference USA got rated hard by uh, the American, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in that game of dominoes and, and, and I, for whatever reason, I think the ripple effect on the Sunbelt was fairly minimal, but also the Sunbelt went out and got Appalachian state, right. And, and coastal Carolina. like they added teams that were from F, F moving up from FCS that have turned out to be really good. So um, it is a better conference now. And so if you want to say like, well, Bill Clark winning conference USA titles doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, but I will just I'm just keep getting back to they shut his damn program down completely. He had to start it from scratch. They could have been like SMU was after the death penalty. and Instead, they go to bowl games every year uh, and won two of the last three conference titles.
0: I also thought you guys were both a little i don't know maybe maybe I'm underrating you freeze, I'm still a little cool on freeze but but on um, bump uh pun intended um so i I couldn't necessarily pull the trigger on him so so i'm gonna i'm gonna uh put you in the crosshairs though Bruce, even though I kind of agree with you, I'm gonna play the devil's advocate here. And you got to defend Harbaugh still being in here. And I, I'm going to do this from the fans' perspective because he has never beaten Ohio State, right? Um, he is supposedly at one of the one of the premier programs in all of college football, the winniest program in the history of college football. I think they still have that designation. They may have slipped a little bit behind Notre Dame. Uh, you have all the bells and whistles at Michigan, so even his best at Michigan is still a little bit underachieving. And then last year they were certainly not their best. It was literally the worst year it looks like a program that is now you know sliding backwards after hitting a peak that wasn't peak enough and is now sliding backwards so defend yourself bruce feldman how could jim harbaugh be the 22nd best coach in the country when there are plenty of people out there that said he should have been fired last year
1: so i has it been disappointing no doubt i am i am there i've dropped him down considerably the last few years um but here's the thing, and the Ohio State thing is they you know, is real, right? It's like they got close uh in the JT Barrett game, and then all of a sudden it's like the last couple of years they got blown out. But when you look at his record now, the guy's forty nine and twenty two and he's thirty four and sixteen. And remember, like he took over a program the previous two years that actually wasn't even five hundred. So then you start looking, all right. Yes. Has he, has he been really awful in the games that matter the most against Ohio state? Yes. I don't have him in my top uh, top 20, but when he, you know, a year ago they beat Notre Dame when they were a top 10 team and they blew them out. They beat them by 31. My, you know, as I relate to the rest of the guys on the list, or let me use Stu's list because Stu's taken issue with Harbaugh more than anything. Um, Stu has PJ Fleck on his list in the top 20. Uh, Jim Harbaugh is two and O against him. He's blown him out both times. PJ Fleck doesn't even have a winning record in four years in the big 10. And he's at, he's in the easy side of the division in the conference where they only played Ohio state one time since PJ Fleck's been there. And so, you know, if you're going to talk about body of work or you're going to talk about where they are, I mean, it's like, He's 34 and 16 in the Big 10. That's not awful. Um, and if you're just taking the Michigan stuff and obviously like you, Ralph, I mean, I think some people probably forgot what an amazing job he did at Stanford when he took over Stanford. That was probably the worst, uh, power conference job when Pete Carroll was dominating the league. We saw what happened there. When he left there, it was a top, they were a top five team. And David Shaw took over a completely different program that he was able to sustain. So I get it. He is he has been really disappointing also. I mean, you know, you can say, Oh yeah, he's mocked and he's settled, he's done a lot of stuff where he stepped on a lot of people's toes and you know, Paul Feinbaum and everybody like that mocks him and hates him. And he's done a lot of stuff that's probably come back to bite him. But I mean, look at the guy's record the last before the pandemic. He's been, he was there five years and four of the years they were in the top 20. It's not like he's the worst coach, it, it, you know, like what we're talking about here. Um, when you start going objectively, look at what he's done there. I don't think it's as bad as what people are saying. I think it is top. I think his body of work, he's a top 25 coach.
0: I will say what I've said about Harbaugh for several years. Harbaugh, and as a big baseball fan, Harbaugh at some point became Alex Rodriguez during his time with the Yankees, whereas, where, which means that he was only judged on his failures. No matter what he did well, he would, he was only judged on, he struck out, In that at bat against in the playoffs when they needed a big hit. And no matter what he did before or after that, in other words, the only big games for Harbaugh are the ones he loses. And again, I understand that like that shifted a bit over the last couple of years. I've been I even wrote last year, like a lot of us like, listen, this kind of feels like I'm done I'm, I might be done defending him. I might think that, that maybe it's time to move on. Maybe he peaked and now things are sliding back. I will say this, Mr. O, recruiting rankings to hold him against James Franklin, Stu. Harbaugh kicked ass on the recruiting, in, on, in recruiting last year. It was, it was surprising to see what, what Michigan's recruiting class looked like coming off that year. And apparently, you know, it's super early, but he's done pretty well already. So, you know, maybe when you pull the, the some, some peel back the layers of the onion, Penn State is not as in good a shape as um, as Harbaugh, as Michigan is. Maybe there are some fractures at Penn State that we're not seeing that could be exposed over the last couple of years. This is to support your argument there, uh, uh, Stu, that we're but but maybe you're missing the point that maybe there's a foundation at Michigan that is maybe that is a little better right now than Penn State.
2: We'll see. I mean, they right, always right, sign right. highly ranked recruiting classes at Michigan, and but you know if you watch them play the last couple of years, you didn't see a lot of a lot of guys out there. Uh, now he has put a lot of guys in the NFL since he's been there. It's not like I think maybe as recently as a couple of years ago they had you know uh, nine or ten guys drafted, right? But you're just not you're not getting the results. You know, for for Bruce to bring up PJ Fleck, I mean, that means you
1: you you have him 17th, Stu.
2: Yeah, he coached. He just he. He he. We are one year removed from PJ Fleck leading Minnesota to an eleven-win season. Do you know how many eleven-win seasons Minnesota had before that? None. Ever. He won thirteen games at Western Michigan. How many times Western Wait, Michigan had
1: done that before? Now now you're now you're, Zero. Another, now you're bringing up another school still. I didn't think you talked about that. So you want to talk about Stanford and what Jim Harbaugh did there? That was 2010.
2: I'm talking about something in the
1: last five years. Uh, You know, I think. He's been there four years. He has a losing record in the Big Ten. He took took over
2: a program. He took over a program that, remember the
1: scandal at the end of. uh, It also had the bowl game at Minnesota. The two guys. Yeah. He also took over a program that had Antoine Winfield Jr. In there and it had Tyler Johnson. They had some good players. Uh, Carter Coughlin. They had good players in it. They're in yeah, the weaker they had side of the conference. A couple good players in
2: it, but they were. I mean,
1: Stu, they were. Not, Stu, they had the same record that Michigan had when Jim Harbaugh took over the previous year.
2: So you're saying the expectations for the Michigan coach are no different than the expectations for a Minnesota coach?
1: No, I'm saying that the guy who has who has won like three times as many games in his in his conference record compared to the one you put seventeenth. Um, I don't think you're looking at them objectively. Is all I'm saying. I think think you're looking at. I think you're looking at them like you're looking at them as you are. You know, looking at them through a Twitter troll perspective. To be no, I'm looking
0: at
2: them based on the expectations when they were hired, and I would argue that PJ Fleck, even though they had a backslide this year, you know, has already exceeded anybody's wildest expect. Nobody would have expected that in his third year he would lead Minnesota to a top ten season. Michigan, Jim Harbaugh was hired. And it was no see. They made him like one of the highest paid coaches in the country. And there was no question. Your mandate is to win Big Ten championships and go to playoffs. And he not only has he not done that, you know, other than that one 2016 season, the JT Barrett fourth down spot, he hasn't even come close. You know, he's at some point, everybody decided that the bar for Michigan is much lower than it actually is. Like this is one of the winningest programs of all time and national championships. And, you know, at one time I'm old enough to remember when they had Ohio State's number. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's completely flipped. So is it better than Brady Hoke? Yes. Is it what people thought they were getting when they hired Jim Harbaugh? No. And the last thing I would say about that is they just docked him a 50% pay cut. They could have fired him. They decided, no, you can come back, but you're going to have to take a 50% pay cut because you're just not earning, uh, what we were paying you before. You're going to have to earn it back. So for somebody who is in that position to say, he's one of the in the top twenty percentile of coaches in the country, like that, those don't go together. If you're I, one of the top twenty coaches I'm in the country, you're not having to get a pay his, cut.
1: I'm looking at his body of work, still. I mean, that's it's as simple as that. I'm not talking about like having one good year every four years.
0: I'm, okay, I'm not going to pile on here. I agree. <laughs> I agree with Bruce, but I think you've done enough here, Bruce. I think you've done enough damage here. I'm going to put well, you. I'm going to put both a, of you the guys. The
2: funny in- thing is, I don't think anybody listening is going to agree with you. <laughs> like, you know, you, you just said you agree with Bruce, and that I use maybe he's like embarrassed me with this argument. No, no, no. I don't think anybody listening is going to agree. They're going to be like, "Are you crazy? You have them top. Think, it's even in the top." I think seat. what I think what Ralph
1: said is, I think what Ralph said actually is, I, I never thought of it this way, but I think his analogy is very apt. The A <laughs> especially because he lives in new york so i think he has a you know a pretty good understanding of that kind of venom that's toward it look i don't i don't think jim harbaugh is a likable figure i mean he wasn't a likable figure when he took over and was you know he was poking the bear uh poking fine audience all that um has he been disappointing yes i said that before he did you know he didn't beat ohio state a lot you know it's a lot like though who is beating, you know, Ohio State in that point is basically what Alabama has been. There's a lot of coaches be, who, you know, are not able to compete with Nick Saban. It, we're not pushing them out of the top 25, though. He's okay. not beating Michigan State either, though. Okay. I mean, you <laughs> no, know, he's, he he's just been. not beating either by the of them. They number, lost to a really bad number Michigan three. They also beat Notre Dame when they were top ten by thirty points in twenty nineteen. Like that's the point I think Ralph makes is you're not giving I mean he's two and zero against Pat Fitzgerald. We both think Pat Fitzgerald's a terrific coach. He's two and oh against PJ Fleck. You think he's a great coach. Yeah, he's had wins um, against guys Wiss, are
0: coaching wins against Wisconsin you know,
2: very low expectations. And I don't know. I, I don't I don't we don't need to go on and on and on about this, but you know, I think everything you're saying held up a year ago or maybe two years ago. But I mean the program has just gone in a complete nosedive and now it's like I mean, let's be honest, if Michigan were in the SEC, he would have been fired last year. He only still has a job because they don't wanna they don't wanna alienate the Michigan man, right? Well but like but just, but SEC Boosters don't throw money to, to fire coaches in the Big Ten the way they do in the SEC.
0: Well, but the SEC fired a coach last year who might be a top 25 coach. I mean, that doesn't make, make it a good idea. I mean, you know, Gus Malzahn, I, I had like right on the, I had in my list last year and I was tempted to put him back there again. I think the guy's a good coach and they just tossed him aside because in some ways, you know, listen, I do, I, I also agree that at a certain point you get a little stale and sometimes it's best for a program to just, so I'm not necessarily saying they should have kept Gus. What I'm saying is, like, there was no good reason to fire Gus on, on, on necessarily performance. Like, all, he had done a good job and still got fired. Um, and it, I think is still a good coach. That's a, that's a, that's a strange dynamic that happens in the SEC. I could make the same argument for, for Harbaugh that maybe they should have parted ways with Harbaugh, but that he is still a good coach, but that, you know, he had sort of peaked, things have gotten stale, and it's time to move on. That's a different set of, of, of arguments about sort of the nature of a, of, of the life shelf of a coach in college football. Let me just hit this, because we could go all day, and this has been fun. I just I I have a hard time even ranking Ryan Day after only two years. And I kind of like sketched out my list and, and put Day to the side because, man, two years taking over at Ohio. I mean, the guy's clearly. Wait, n- wait, no wait, dummy. wait,
2: wait. You wanted me to you were adamant that Mac Brown should be in there after two years. But Ryan Day can't be considered for. Two well, years? I
1: think not to speak no. for Ralph, but Stu, here's the here's the challenge with this. One guy took over a program that was like a two-win program. Ryan Day, who I, I think all three of us agree, is a terrific coach, and we'd all think he'd be a good hire anywhere. The thing is, he took over from Urban Meyer. The previous four years, they won a national title and had not finished lower than six. There was already, you know, he, he kept the strength coach. He kept the D-line coach. He kept the recruiting office. He kept a lot of the best elements that were already in place. It's a different situation than the Mac Brown situation. Fair
2: enough. Uh, I'll fully admit it was throwing darts to, to, to say where we should put
0: Ryan Day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, part yeah. part of my my feeling on Day is not. I am i don't feel like I would be penalizing him by not ranking him. I feel like I would be just saying, listen, like I I don't really know what to do with this. <laughs> so he's clearly like, if somebody asked me, is Ryan Day a good coach? I'm going to say, yes, Ryan Day seems to be a very good coach. Love the way he, love, love what he has done with that offense in a way that I think has pushed, made Ohio State better, right? I think, there, I don't think it's a coincidence that that he has actually made Ohio State a little better than Urban ever. The last two Ohio State teams, I I believe, other than the, the 2014 championship team, I think were better than most of Urban's teams. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's it's Day's offensive mind influence uh, influencing the way they play. And I also think to a certain degree, it becomes circumstance, right? I think letting a little air out of the balloon, a little less pressure, a little urban a little less Urban style pressure, I think has help the Buckeyes, um, reach a new level, but we'll see what happens over the last couple of years. Again, it's not a slight for today, the fact that I'm not ranking him. I just feel like after two years, I'm not really even sure. You know, I, I still worry that I think I've, I've, I've got Kirby Smart too high. I wonder if I've got Lincoln Riley too high after only four years taking over a great situation. So. Let's just do this. I'll give you, I'll give you guys a chance to throw some darts at me and then I'll let you all go. And then, oh, well, we have to squeeze in one more topic, though. I'll throw down. We don't know your list. I'll throw down my list. I'll throw you my list. And I know it's a little hard and I've already made some arrows and cross outs here. So Sabin Dabo Kelly. I put Jimbo at number four. I had Jimbo a little lower last year, but I'm also looking back now and thinking like they, they seem to be heading in the right direction. Everything seems to be going in the right direction right now for, for Texas A&M. It's, it, it, it's, it it, 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 I suspect Texas A&M is on the way to being maybe not a, a, a fierce challenger to, to Alabama, but a team that is the current second best team to Alabama. Uh, Riley at five. I have Matt Campbell at six. Frankly, I almost put him ahead of Riley. <laughs> I'm just a, a total, I'm in the, I'm, I'm absolutely in the, in the tank for Matt Campbell. I think he's a fabulous coach. I have Franklin at seven. I might be persuaded to knock him down below Kirby Smart at eight and Pat Fitzgerald at nine, maybe even below Mac Brown at 10. I have Edo at 11. Uh, and frankly, I'm, I, I had to be, I had to talk myself into that high, even though in the national, even last year, I was a little skeptical about Ed Orzeron. Uh, Dan Mullen, 12 Whittingham at 13. Uh, You talked me out of Gundy at 14, so I'm going to dock him a little and say Gary Patterson, 14, Mike Leach, 15, David Shaw, 16, and Gundy, 17. I'll throw Mario Cristobal on there at 18, and I'm already regretting that. Jim Harbaugh at 19. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You saved that for a while,
1: did you? Well, so so I, I just, I just climbed up a mountain and you were there and like had no water to drink and you're sitting there with a couple of cold
0: beers. What is that? No, I was, I told you I, I had to play, I told you I agree with you, but I had to play devil's advocate because I just feel it's my job as the moderator to not gang up on stew.
2: Anyway. when you guys put this episode out you're going to get ganged up on by the listeners so it's all good keep going so i
0: have Luke Fickle at 20 i have Paul Christ at 21 i always have a hard time with Chris because i really do feel like it's a lot of the system there and he is a perfect fit for that system and i'm not sure Paul Christ at a different place would be as successful uh so even then i, I probably could even knock him down one or two i have Lance Leipold at 22 Ferenc at 23 uh, Monk in at 24, and uh, quite frankly, here's my own little pet one. I, you know, I think Dave Clawson does a great job, so I put him on at 25. I, I just think Wake Forest is an impossible job, and he's done a good job at Wake Forest, so I have Clawson at 25.
2: I mean, there's nothing particularly controversial about any of that. I'm just when you were bringing up Mac Brown and what a glaring omission it was, I thought you were going to say I have him at 22. Uh, you have him at
0: 10. I had him at 16 last year, though. I was just looking about at the list I put together last year. Cause again, you like, guys I feel like you're me. having
2: amnesia about the last five years of his, like, you're, you're making it seem like he, he won the, he, you know, Colt McCoy well, got the, hurt and he, and he it, walked off. It wasn't into the, the sunset. last five years. It wasn't the last five years, too. It was really. Oh, it was. 10 2010 okay. 11 12 13 were, were pretty rough okay so uh, so pretty they, they were getting their he won, kicked by Oklahoma he, every, won,
1: he you know, won nine Taysom Hill ran years, ran
2: for 800 yards on them he had to fire Manny Diaz like there, there's a reason he got fired so um so to say he's like I just feel like you're playing like, he had an unbelievable unbelievable run his first decade at Texas he was if we were doing one of these lists in 2009, I bet he's in the top three. Um, but somehow, getting fired at Texas, coming back, going seven and six his first year, and what nine and four his second has elevated him into the top ten.
0: Uh, what? Let me. Okay, so since he left Texas, the his last four years at Texas, which looked like you know, which were not great, right? Which was what essentially got him fired. Those years at Texas were better than what Charlie Strong did and not that much different from what Tom Herman did. I would see. I, I've been, I've been, I've been taught very well by your colleague David Ubben and my colleague Jim Fortuno. What Mac Brown did at Texas is not the norm. If you look Correct. at the history of Texas, Mac Brown was Mac Brown maxed out at Texas in a way that only Daryl Royal ever did. So I think I'm recalibrating. Not only am I giving him credit for his highs at Texas, I'm recalibrating his quote unquote lows at Texas to realize that hey, maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't really Mac gone bad there. Maybe there's just something about Texas and his lows have looked again, much like Tom Herman's tenure. Now you can say Tom Herman got fired, but I just think that I have recalibrated the way I look. I had him 16 last year. I think he, the program that he has at North Carolina is building. Again, if you want to go way back his first run at North Carolina was as good as North Carolina has been in our lifetimes. Um, so again, I know that that might as well be have been the dark ages and it's, it's, you know, did they even have black and did they even have color TVs back then? But <laughs> I, 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 I have a certain significance to that too. So yes, I'm going to put Mac Brown at number 10. And yeah, I'm sorry, Stu. I kind of, le- I mean, sorry, Bruce. I kind of left you out there on Harbaugh, but, and maybe I would readjust and knock him down a bit here, but I would absolutely still have Harbaugh in my, let's say 19 to 22-ish range, 18, 19, 22-ish range.
2: Quick quick question, Ralph. And this is you may not be able to really answer this in hindsight, but this just speaks to the oddities of college football. So UNC last year went an eight and three in the regular season. Uh, they most of their wins were against the likes of BC, Virginia Tech, you know, they did lose to Forest State, Virginia, and then they had that they lost to Notre Dame and they had that had you know unbelievable 62-26 win over Miami in the last game of the season. And then because two ACC teams made the playoff, and there's a guaranteed contract that an ACC team goes to the Orange Bowl. They went to the Orange Bowl. Um, if one ACC team had made the playoff, they would have gone to, what's it called now? Camping World Bowl? Yeah. So if yeah. If, only, if 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 they had the same exact season, but they go to the Camping World Bowl, do you think you would have them in the top 10?
0: Because
2: um, isn't there like some, like, they went to the Orange Bowl. There's like a
0: prestige But, but maybe there. if they go to the Camping World Bowl, they win because they're not That's facing true. the fourth or fifth best team in the country. Uh, You know, I listen, I don't know if they would have I the simple fact that they competed against Texas A&M to me really like opened my eyes in that game. I thought that they were going to get steamrolled by an A&M team that felt like it had something to prove while they are a team that had was team opt out, right? Uh All their best running backs and receivers opted out. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, m- maybe I'm overrated, but I, again, a look at the history of Mac and what he has done, and how things have turned around so quickly at North Carolina. And I just think, like, man, this guy's a Hall of Famer. And I wouldn't have, you know, chucked out Bill S- I, again if I'm going to have Gary Patterson at number fifteen and some of these other guys who have got a long history. Uh, I, I just got to go back to a guy with a national championship and a long history of. of it's almost the same thing as as uh, as Brian Kelly, like. Mac Brown just doesn't have losing seasons. The guy's been in college football for a long time, pumping out winning seasons. And I think there's something that should be, you know, you got to give him credit for that. Fair enough. All right. So let's, let's a- end on this. I appreciate uh, all your time. The NCAA has stepped in it the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, unforced error started this whole thing of the inequity between the men's tournament and the women's tournament. Unforced error being the weight room, right? If they just would have said, Hey, this is even though it was in the plan and even some women's coaches have said, Hey, we kind of knew that it was going to be a little short. Now, now, not that we like it, but we, but we were given a heads up that they were going to build out the weight room, uh, after some teams were had moved on or had been eliminated. But nonetheless, it's now. You know, once this thing starts rolling, it becomes a snowball down a hill, right? And then you, you start getting banged for this thing and that thing and the other thing. And it all starts with unforced errors. And a lot of times that's the way it always starts with uh, the NCAA It's a bunch of unforced errors and everybody piles on. Um, you know, there have been some calls to have Emmert fired because of all this stuff. I'll start with you, Stu, because I think you tend to be a little more plugged into the NCAA issues and everything else that's going on. Uh, do you feel like we're seeing the end of Mark Emmert's tenure here?
2: If we are, and we might, but although we, I feel like he's had nine lives, and there's been many times where it felt like it was the end of the Mark Emmert era. It would be like, you know, uh, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's. There are many legitimate reasons to to feel like he's a terrible leader of the NCAA, and I don't know that this is the best example of it. Like this, to me, was kind of. Um, I mean, somebody dropped the ball, somebody who organizes these tournaments, it just just dropped the ball. And and I would love to hear a full accounting of, of when the decisions were made and why and why didn't they coordinate it better. But, you know, this notion that's taken off and not because there's no easier column to write in our industry, right, than fire Mark Emmert or easier tweet to send. And this notion is just skyrocketed around the Internet that, well, it must be that Mark Emmert was sitting up in his tower in India and said, they don't get a weight room, right? Like they shall not have a weight room before the sweet 16 and they shall not have March madness logos on their court. And that's, I seriously doubt that's what happened here. Uh, I would love to know what really happened because I do think it's a total fiasco. If you're going to fire Mark Emmert, it should be because there has never been less respect or trust for the NCAA than there is now. They get attacked every day by uh, congressmen and state legislatures and uh you know prominent coaches and you know the fact that they could have addressed NIL at any time in the 11 years since Ed O'Bannon filed his lawsuit and they still haven't gotten it done like those to me are the biggest among other things indictments of Mark Emmert whereas if you go fire him tomorrow is that going to improve gender equity in the NCAA in any tangible way like i think that's a much that's something that needs to be addressed and and, and a in a productive way that will actually affect change by figuring out how did this go wrong.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm with you on the idea that again, if like this is not the re- I, I don't think Mark Emmert is standing. I, you know, and listen, you're allowed to have this opinion. I don't think Mark Emmert is standing in the way of equity for a, a more equitable space for women in college sports. Um, maybe he is not the problem solver there. And I think the fact that he hasn't been a great problem solver in a lot of spaces. Again, I would fire him for the, for the fact that they are now pinned into this NIL position where they're a couple of months away from all these state laws. I, you know, again, that's not, it's not all on him. The other thing I would also say, and I, I, I want, I mean, I'll, I'll throw it to you, Bruce, for thoughts too, is we have to stop thinking of the NCAA as a, as a, as a, um, Autonomous body that rules over college sports, and Mark Emmert as the equivalent to Roger Goodell. That is not the way this works. If you want to bury the NCAA, it starts at it starts at home. So start burying your school because the leadership their leadership within the NCAA starts in the school level.
1: I would say that the the the, the where he drops the ball is where they drop the ball a lot, and it's the optics part of it. And when it comes out, what he said, and it's, it never seems, there seems to be no accountability with him. Um, and that is, this is the latest example. It has happened over and over and over again. And and my issue is, if the leadership is not uh, part of the solution, then it is part of the problem. And think about what we're talking We're talking about gender equity in this specific case. The NCAA's whole model, it bends over backward to to try to keep things that are not equal as it relates to recruiting advantages and different things in college sports where if you are getting recruited by Stanford and you're getting recruited by school X, they are not the same opportunities. But yet, the way the NCAA tries to create its model and goes so above and beyond twisting itself in knots to the to the detriment about some leveled playing field, and the fact that they walked into this and then could not get out of it in the, and then he made it a storyline, like for another 48 hours or longer by his comments that he made in the wake of it just shows you how how out of touch he is. Um, I think he has long long past uh, served his, you know, his opportunity, and now I think the NCA, needs to find somebody else with a better vision and a better picture big picture sense and like you know what what Stu said a minute ago about about the trust and how you know it's viewed there's a lot of things that are viewed in a really really negative light in this era whether it's you know the optics on the media or politicians or whatever um, and You know, those things aren't always reasons to change something. My my thing with Mark Emmert is he's been in this position for too long at this point. And I just think that they need they need new leadership.
0: That will be the last word. Stu, Stu Mandel, Stuart Mandel is uh, uh, the boss at the Athletics College Football um, uh, coverage. Stuart, thank you so much for joining me Today, Bruce, you can catch him, Bruce Feldman. You can read him on the athletic. And of course, you can see him during the football season on Fox's uh, pregame show. Will you be? Well, I don't know if I should ask you that. I don't want to ask you that because it might put you in a spot where you don't know, where you don't know exactly what's going on. But we've also seen Bruce on sidelines of games. We didn't see that much last year, but we see him in the studio show and we hope to see a lot more of Bruce on Fox. And you can read him on the athletic and you can find both Stuart Mandel and Bruce Feldman's Top twenty-five coaches list on the Athletic this week, gentlemen, friends. Thank you very much for doing this with me today and allowing me to—I don't know—throw some shade at both of you.
2: Thanks. Great to come on here and get dunked on. And uh, <laughs> you know, next time I see you in person, let me know if you want to like literally take me to a dunk tank and do it for real. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Ralph. I actually enjoyed it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I did. I'm just kidding. It's always great talking to you, and you've always been a great guest on the audible as well.
0: Probably didn't fairly distribute my punches on this episode, but I'll probably I'll try to make it up for you at a future episode where we'll bring both of you on and we can gang up on Bruce.
2: Sounds good. All right, thanks, Ralph.
0: And now three and out. And three and out. This week we'll dip into the mailbag. First down. First email comes from listener Jacob Street, and it has the subject line of WVU return to glory. Jacob is a West Virginia fan, and his his question to sum it up is, will West Virginia ever return to the highs of Pat White, Steve Slayton, and Owen Schmidt days? He says, I think I've come to the realization that I've already seen the peak of West Virginia football, both in terms of excitement and the high water mark of where they can realistically finish ranking wise. Can you talk me out of this? Thanks and appreciate the podcast, Jacob. I don't think I can talk you out of this. Let me explain where I am on this. When reading this question, my mind immediately goes to conference realignment and what certain schools gave up to align themselves with what turned out to be Power Five conferences. Remember, the Big East in many ways was a peer conference with the rest of the Power Five before realignment killed Big East football and created what we now know as the Power Five back then the bcx the bcs had six conferences that filled the big bowl games and got all the attention now was the big east post miami and virginia tech as strong top to bottom year in and year out as its peer conferences back then when west virginia was the big dog in the big east well That's debatable. There were some pretty weak ACC seasons back then, too, and a lot of Big Ten programs had fallen into pretty mediocre spaces as the conference was in a period of adjusting to how it needed to recruit to keep up with the SEC as population drained from a lot of those states. West Virginia benefited during those years not only from the Big East competition, which, you know, wasn't quite as good as maybe the best in college football, But from the fact that it was not quite a Southern school, not quite a Midwestern school... But it had a really good tradition of winning and a passionate fan base, so it had a lot of good tools to work with then, and it hired a head coach in Rich Rodriguez who ran a cutting-edge offense. West Virginia gave up its status as the big dog in the Big East to become just another program shooting at Oklahoma and Texas in the Big 12. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done that. Of course, West Virginia needed to do that. Or get left behind in terms of TV dollars, access to Power 5 level exposure. I still think West Virginia can be a successful program. And I think there actually is some advantage to being the only Big 12 school that is not dependent on recruiting Texas. But by joining the Big 12, West Virginia probably lowered its ceiling. As far as what we can expect from its performance on the field. So yeah, Jacob, I think I agree with you. The high watermarks that we saw under Rich Rod with Slayton and and Pat White, those are going to be harder to attain. I think Pitt did the same thing when it joined the ACC and certainly that's the case with Syracuse. Though I think West Virginia is far better positioned than Syracuse and probably even better position than Pitt to A, be a consistent winner in the conference that it's in. And B, every now and then put together a team like it had a couple of years ago that was a legit contender to play in the Big 12 title. Is it possible for West Virginia to catch lightning and have a team that makes a run the way it did with Rich Rod, Pat White and Steve Slayton? Yes, but in the current landscape of college football, it is simply far less likely than it used to be. Second down. And this email comes from listen- listener, Christopher Johnson. Hi, Ralph. I'm from New Hampshire, a known college football hotbed. I think he was being sarcastic there and have gone on annual trips to major college football games since graduating high school. I am asking for your three top places my friends and I should visit. We went to UGA. University of Georgia in 2019 and the Red River game in 2018. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening, Chris. Thanks for the email. So it's hard to pin it down to just three spots. So I want to give you a little diversity among these three spots as far as where you're going to, go, where you can go, what part of the country and sort of the different feel you will get in these three spots. I could definitely make this list a lot longer, but here, here are my three. I know people love to hate Notre Dame, but there is a reason why when teams like Georgia play there for the first time, their fans come to South Bend in droves. The campus is beautiful and historic. And while we make fun of Notre Dame's self-importance, it is still in many ways the university of college football. Unless you're just the coldest-hearted Notre Dame hater, when you go there and walk around on game day, you kind of understand why their fans feel like their school is so special. Next, LSU. It is pretty much the loudest stadium in the country. You can visit Mike the Tiger's sanctuary, and you will be fed very well Before a game, because Louisianans do tailgating Cajun style and love to show the Yankees, like myself, what they are missing out on. And again, there, you can definitely do more than three of these. I could easily come up with the Grove at Old Miss or cell gating at Washington, a very loud place when the Huskies were going well, or even, you know, the boats that pull up to the game at Tennessee. Knoxville is a great place to go see a game, even though the vols haven't really held up their end of the bargain lately. Madison is a great city. Camp Randall is nuts for a game, especially if it's a little later in the day. And when they do jump around the stadium really does jump around but really if you're going to go to three you should probably try to head out to the west coast and if you really want to experience college football and some college football history in a beautiful setting you got to go to the rose bowl it might be a little old-fashioned of me to say but try to get there in a year when you have at least one team that hasn't gone in a while Uh, The setting is beautiful, and for most fans and for most teams and their fans, it really does mean a lot to play in that game, even when it has no bearing on the national championship. A traditional Rose Bowl, maybe Michigan against USC or UCLA, would be a great college football experience. Third down. Here's my quick take on the NCAA controversy over inequities between the men's and women's basketball tournaments. First, I don't want to hear anybody suggest, well, the men should get better or more because capitalism, right? The men bring in more dollars. But that's not the way the NCAA works. It really doesn't do capitalism. If it did, the men would be getting paid. Next, talk to anybody who I would like to call a true believer in college sports. That's most ADs and commissioners and a lot of coaches and certainly those who work for the NCAA. And they are quick to point out that all the sports, men's and women's, are important. The people who work in college sports are constantly sending that message that the swimmer, the golfer, the lacrosse player, the sprinter are every bit as important as the quarterbacks and the point guards. And that's the reason why or one of the reasons why they don't treat the quarterbacks and point guards differently. Or at least they say they don't want to treat the point guards and, and, and quarterbacks differently. It's the foundation of amateurism. It's one of the reasons why. College football and college basketball have so many issues. Big-time college sports have so many issues and critics about what players should be compensated and who gets what. Because the core of college sports is a great idea, providing education and opportunity through athletics and making it part of an educational experience. It's a tremendous idea. It's just hard to house multi-billion dollar minor league football and basketball teams within that structure. But I digress. The NCAA has probably done more to lift up women's sports than any professional league or business entity. This is actually what the NCAA is good at, providing great opportunities and exposure for athletes whose sports are generally not packing stadiums and arenas and getting television networks to bid hundreds of millions of dollars for their rights. And yet here we are because of an unforced error and bad crisis management and messaging and just people talking probably when they shouldn't be talking with the NCAA getting hammered for not doing enough to advance women's sports. I'm not saying the NCAA is perfect on this front and there is not more that could be done to create a more equitable space. But this last week is as much about the lack of faith in an institution as it is about the lack of a weight room in San Antonio. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. If you have any questions that you'd like to send me or my guests to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop 25 mailbag. 2525 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you on all topics college football, serious or silly. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.